Hello, and welcome to Crosscut Talks, a podcast replay of Crosscut's live interviews with the people who shape our world. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the news and politics editor at Crosscut. Today we listen in on a conversation with two men at the top of their fields who have used their fame to make social change. Macklemore is a Grammy-winning rapper from Seattle. He wrote the unofficial anthem for the marriage equality movement, Same Love, and his song White Privilege Too helped ignite a national conversation about racial inequity. Doug Baldwin Jr. is a Super Bowl champion wide receiver and two-time Pro Bowl selection. He's spoken out on a number of social justice causes, including the successful effort to reform police accountability law in Washington state. Activist and educator DeRay McKesson is asking the questions. This conversation is sponsored by Comcast, Alaska Airlines, and BECU. It was recorded on May 4th, 2019 at Seattle University as part of the Crosscut Festival. We want to sit. I know, he wants to sit over there. He wants to sit away from everybody. How are you guys doing? We are excited for this conversation today. I'm the luckiest moderator. I get to just help make sure that the brilliance shines on the stage. So I'm going to start out with a question to you, though, first, before we jump into this conversation. And the question is about crime. So of all the arrests that happen for violent crimes in the country, what percent do you think happen, uh, what percent of the arrests that happen for violent crime in the country do you think are, um, let me repeat the question. Okay, so of all the arrests, I'm like, what? So of all the arrests that happen in the country, what percent do you think happen for violent crime? So if you think that more than 50% of the arrests in the country happen for violent crime, raise your hand. 40 to 50 percent, you have to vote at some point. 30 to 40 percent, 20 to 30 percent, 10 to 20 percent, less than 10 percent. It is 5 percent. And the reason that I start there is that so much of our work is helping people understand what is true and what's not true, helping people understand like what the system actually does to people's lives. That if you believe that it's 40%, 50%, you're more likely to believe that the police are the answer, that incarceration is a part of it. One of the reasons that I want to have this conversation today with Doug and with Macklemore, as you know him, is because we know that there's a role for everybody to play in this fight. So the question that I'll ask you to start is what are some of the issues that are close to you with regard to social justice, and how did you come to have those issues be the things that you talk about publicly? How did I start? I, um, when I was 23, I was going to the Evergreen State College, and I started working in a maximum security juvenile detention facility called Green Hill. And, and Maple Lane. And um, I ended up doing that through the college I was at and then um, ended up getting a job at Green Hill. And I saw kind of firsthand what these kids were going through, who was going through it, how they were targeted, why they were targeted, um, how the system repeated, how it wasn't really about rehabilitation, how it was about incarceration. And that they really had, that the system had no emphasis on getting people better, getting these youth better, but just keeping them away from society. That was the very beginning. Um, and then, you know, I grew up in Seattle down the street. So we, um, you know, we had the WTO riots and, you know, I was introduced, you know, just by, by rapping and being a part of open mics and, um, you know, being amongst that kind of spoken word community of the late 90s, there was an uh, emphasis on, um, you know, figuring out who we were as people, but how we operated in the society and what that was all about and the, and the system that we were under. So that was my kind of background and origin that kind of led me on the path that I'm on today. Got it. Doug? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, so what, uh, so what issues are important to you? And then how did you choose those issues as the things that you talk about publicly? Okay, so I'll go back. I'll, I'll answer the, the second question first. So um, I grew up in a small town in Florida. Um, 
is very, very different than Seattle, let me say that. Um, Ku Klux Klan rallies, have, you, have, you, have any of you seen that in Seattle? Um, that was a thing where I'm from. Wow. And there's a picture, my mom had this picture uh, in the newspaper, it was a picture of her like up against this fence, like yelling at the, uh, you know, the, the, the Klan master, right? And it's this picture in this newspaper. And so from a very young age, I think I was already privy to, you know, this is just how life is. You have to fight for what you believe in. You have to fight for things that are, you know, sometimes not right in our society. Um, and I think it was just in my blood because that's how my mom was, right? I was fortunate enough to get out of there. <laughs> um, and I went to, to Stanford University, you know, opposite side of the country, culture shock, completely different. Like there's so much diversity in, in California that I'd never seen before. And not only just diversity in ethnicity, but diversity in thought, right? And what I witnessed and what I realized was that there is a significant lack of access to ed education um, in a number of ways. Uh, and it's only getting, it's, it's exponentially growing because of technology and how that's taking off and how it's changing everything. And, you know, I'm not as old as my man here. Oops, sorry. Not as old as my man here, but. <laughs> Grandpa. I'm learning, right? And my experiences, I'm gaining these experiences as I go, as I go on in my life and I'm, I'm paying attention to them. You know, my wife was uh, a very important cog in that wheel in terms of forcing me to pay attention to the details of life. And, you know, now I'm witnessing just the lack of, ac the, the, the access of education and the lack thereof and just how important and how vital the role that plays in the, the health and wellness of our society overall. And so um, that's the area that I'm kind of focused in right now. What are some of the things that you've learned? This is for both of you, but we'll start with you, Doug. What are some of the things that you've learned about the system since you've been more involved? I know that you've done some stuff around cash bail. I know that you've done some other things. Like, what have you learned? And I ask because, you know, I spend almost all of my time around policing and mass incarceration. And even I, every day, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that this is, I like had no clue that the system worked like that. Yeah. I think probably the biggest lesson I learned um, is just how unempathetic the system is, right? Um, Inherently, the system is designed by human beings, and inherently, human beings have bias. And so there's bias that's laid out in this system, and it's atrocious at times. And what I think, um, you know, I, th I think the problem that we start to have is that we think that, okay, this is what our forefathers created, right? And this was a beautiful system. It was a perfect system. And we now know that it was not perfect. And just like human evolution, you have to continue to progress and continue to change. And if you don't, you die. And I think that, you know, that's probably been the biggest lesson to me is that we've, we've been stagnant for such a long time in some of the areas of our, of our country, of our government, specifically the systemic racism and systemic changes that need to happen. Um, you know, that's probably the biggest thing is that we don't look at it from a humanistic standpoint. We look at it from a logistical standpoint and how that just creates so much problem in our society today. Got it. It's a big question and a broad question. But this is big ideas, right? This is big ideas. Um, I think that I am constantly learning, like you said. I, one, one thing that comes to mind is uh, the system of, of white supremacy. And it's a systemic construct in which I benefit from being a white male. And I think that for a long time when I thought of white supremacy, I thought of like the Ku Klux Klan and, and I thought of, you know, the Aryan nation. And, I, and, and what I realized over time is that this is a system that trickles down and affects all of us every single day in every walk of life. Um, and it's designed that we don't even know it, particularly as white people. Like, we just benefit from it. And we can go about our lives stepping in and out of the conversation, but walk outside of this room or even in this room and still benefit from this, from this system. Um, that was a big, in the last, you know, five years, that was a big, because I'd understood the concept of, of white privilege, mm -hmm. but even going deeper, systemically, that was a big eye-opening moment for me and um, in the work that needs to be done, because it's, it's, it's everything. 
It's one of the things that we say as organizers is that white supremacy is a smog and we all inhale it whether we want to or not. Right. And part of our work is to make sure that when we inhale it that we don't exhale it, right? That we see it and don't perpetuate it. Uh, how, have you, how have you found talking to other white people about white supremacy and white privilege? How have you found that to be? Because some people are like, you're being dramatic. Like, you know, I didn't enslave anybody. I think it takes, I think it takes time. It's not like, hey, let's sit down for 45 minutes and have this conversation. And we're going to leave with a thorough analysis of, of race relations and, and dating back to the last 500 plus years of, of our society. Um, it takes, honestly, a training. It takes, you know, we, we've done a couple with, within my organization, we've done a couple trainings around, um, uh, around this subject. And it takes literally like 48 hours and you're just scratching the surface. Um, so it, it's, you know, I think about even talking to my parents about it. Like it's like a dinner table conversation and you get to a certain point, you're like, we can understand on, on these fundamental levels, but like it's, um, it's tough. It's tough. I think it's about engaging in the conversation, knowing that you're not going to, neither one of you, neither me or whoever I'm talking to, for one, I am no expert by any means. I'm learning every single day, but there is, um, we're not walking away from this like we've figured this out or that we can, even, we can even come close. But what we can do is chip away at it and make sure that we are having those conversations and checking each other as white people as we go through and make mistakes or become complacent. That's a big thing. Like Complacency is, because um, again, we can just fall in and out of it. We're going to benefit from it either way, but, but truly getting down to um, what are you willing to do to dismantle this system that is unjust and, and not fair for all people. Got it. Uh, Doug, what do you think the athletes and artists' responsibility is in times like this to even talk about these issues publicly? As you know, there are a lot of people who would say, like, shut up and play, shut up and sing, that that is sort of like a let other people do this. This isn't what you got hired to do. This isn't what you have a platform to do. What do you say to those people? Well, first and foremost, I hate this question. I'm gonna be honest with you. Not, I know you didn't write this question, yeah. so I'm not gonna blame you. Um, but I hate the question because it's like, what, what are athletes, what are entertainers supposed to do? All right, shut the up. What are humans, what are humans supposed to do? I ain't say that to get a clap. Like, I'm for real about this. Like, what are humans supposed to do, right? Like, to, to, I want to go back and answer his question. Like, I, I've been do, all I've been doing for the past four years is having conversations, and with white people who look at me like, well, I'm, like you said, I'm I'm not racist. I have black friends. Like, yeah, because that clearly makes you not racist. <laughs> but the fundamental thing, right? The fun, to answer your question, the fundamental thing that we as human beings can do is treat other human beings like human beings. Like if you, could, if you could just take a minute and just think like, okay, what would this person want? What does this person value? Who is this person? And then you start to ask yourself, well, who the hell am I? Right? It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter where you're from. Love is a universal language. If you treat people with care and with, and with dignity and with and sincerity and genuineness and with love, you get to the core of the issues. And the core of the issues is that we think in silos. We don't look at each other as other human beings, as people who inhabit this earth together. So fuck the question about what athletes should do or what entertainers should do. What can we do collectively? Because I'm no, important, no more important than you are, and you're no important, more important than I am. We're all humans trying to inhabit this earth. When we were in the womb, right, when we were in the womb as, as babies being developed, you didn't go in there and say, okay, well, I'm going to get Ebony 13 and Athletic Build 15. You didn't, you didn't decide who you were going to be when you came out. No. That was not your choice, but you have a choice now to treat other people who don't look like you, who may not talk like you, who may not like think like you. You treat them with dignity and respect and with love. So to answer your question, what can we do? We can treat each other with humility and, and, and with a humanity perspective. Got it.
What do you do, though, about the backlash that you might receive? Because you do have a bigger platform than most people, both of you do. How do you process like the getting the negative reactions from people who don't want you to talk about race, don't want you to talk about justice, and not even because of the work that you do nine to five, but just because like they don't want these issues to be in the public sphere? Yeah, ask them why. It's a simple question. Why? Oh, don't talk about this. Okay, well, why? Well, I just want to enjoy my football. Okay, so your, your entertainment is more important than me speaking up about the deaths of young black children in America. That's what you're telling me. Okay, why? Now answer that question. You tell me why that's more important to you. Right? It's, it's, it's very simple to me. Right? We had this, there's this big demonstration in New Orleans, right? I don't know if you guys watch football. I don't. But um, NFC Championship game, something happened. The Saints weren't able to go. You know, it was a bad call, whatever. Uh, the Saints weren't able to go to the Super Bowl, right? And they had a big-ass rally in New Orleans, you know, like against the call. And I, t I, I think I tweeted out, I was like, it's, it's surprising to me. It shouldn't be surprising to me, but it's surprising to me what people will demonstrate for. Mm -hmm. Right? We, have, we heard all this crap about you know, players taking a knee, right? the demonstrations, the protests, you know, what we were really protesting. But yet, there's all these people who want to join the fight for New Orleans to go to the Super Bowl, but they don't want to join the fight when it comes to humanity. Why? So when I hear the backlash and when somebody stupid asks me a dumb question, I say, okay, well, you tell me why. Justify it to me. So that's, that's my answer. I like it. Sorry. Like it. <laughs> How do you deal with the backlash? We met because of the, we met because of the song White Fragility. Uh, it came White out. White Privilege too. White Privilege too. Lord, I'm sorry. One of the questions about White Fragility, I really do remember the song. Uh, song comes out in the middle of the night. It was like during the protest. Song comes out. And uh, I see it, I, I listen to it, and on Twitter, people are just like not being very kind, but I loved it. And like that was when we, that was when we connected. So how do you deal with the backlash? I don't read Twitter. It's <laughs> probably good. Well, I, I really don't. I really don't read the internet. I don't Google search my name. I don't have an alert on my phone whenever, whenever I get an article written. I just don't. Is this just, new or is that how you've always been? No, it's been, it's been probably four or five years and I just live a better life because of it. It's pretty simple. Um, but, I, but there is going to be backlash. And the other thing is like you can avoid the internet, you can avoid Twitter, but like there'll always be that one homie that's like, yo, did you see what Denina said about you? <laughs> You're like, no, I didn't. What did he say? <laughs> um, but I think, I think what it comes down to is um, there, is going to be, there is going to be polarizing opinions, like particularly with that song as an example. Like I knew going into it that this was going to be the most polarizing thing that I had ever done up until that point. I had to keep coming back to what is my intention? What is my true, authentic, genuine intention in putting this out into the world? Um, and knowing that this was the best that I could do in that moment. And it's not going to be perfect. It is inherently a, a white rapper talking about white supremacy uh, on a rap record, uh, a nine-minute song. Like there, is go like, there is inherent contradiction in this. There is going to be flaws. But... Um, it was, it was more important to me to put myself out there and to step into the conversation than to sit back and remain silent about it. And knowing that um, I wasn't going to, you know, there was no grandiose expectations. It was just, this is, this is a subject matter that I would feel disingenuous, disingenuous in myself if I didn't speak on. It would be because of fear if I didn't step up and say something about what's going on. Um, and yeah, people in the comment section, oh, unfollowed immediately. Like, who do you think you are? Listen to this white guilt, like, you know, everything, you know, under the sun. Um, honestly, I don't need those people as fans. I don't need their money. Um, I don't need them at the shows. And if they're, and if they're just there 
to listen to thrift shop and, and, and bob their head and, and go home, like find somebody else to, to hop on a bandwagon and, and go support them. And, that, and, that's, and that's fine. Like a lot of entertainment and a lot of what I do too, it's not just like I'm just that person, but I'm, I'm all of these people. And this is something that's a big part of my life, something that's on my heart and something that, um, that I wouldn't be able to sleep if I just, if I knew that I benefited because of the color of my skin, if I knew that I benefited from this system, yet didn't say anything about it, if I knew that um, program directors at radio played my record because I was safe and accessible because of the color of my skin, and I didn't say anything about it, um, I'm not keeping it real at all. You know, that's just, that's never the artist that I've wanted to be. And it was uncomfortable, and, um, you know, still, it's like, this isn't my comfort zone. Doug is really comfortable up here. He just <laughs> calling me out for my age and everything. He's just, <laughs> he's really comfortable. And it's not that I'm uncomfortable up here. I'm not, but it's out of my comfort zone. You know, I was just telling you guys, like I just came from ballet practice with my, with my I don't even practice, that's not what it's called. <laughs> but, um, but Rehearsal? Her, yeah, some, yeah, and that seems... Recital? Simple. Not recital. She's just practicing ballet. <laughs> um, but these types of conversations are important. And, um, and these type of events are important for, for all of us to come to on a sunny, very rarely do we get this type of weather in Seattle, and we're all in, like, a dark arena right now. Like, this is important, though. This is the work that it's going to take. Like, what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to get out there and be vulnerable? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to say some that you wish you wouldn't have said, but now you've learned from it and now you're growing? Yes. Yes. You've also been public about your sobriety and work in recovery. How has that been? What have you learned in that process? Or what is the work that you think is is important moving forward since you've been so public about it? Oh, man, that's a whole other panel. Um, <laughs> and uh, another broad one. I, um, I think we're at the, that we're at a period of time in American society where we have an epidemic. And um, it's not just an opioid epidemic. It's not just an opioid epidemic. That is, you know, what's getting a lot of media attention. That is like a very hotbed topic, um, as it should be. But it's it's a it's the an epidemic around the disease of addiction, and um, and that's one that I'm very passionate about. It's taken um, the lives of too many people to name. Um, I have myself walked that line of death too many times to to count. And um, it's killing people at an alarming rate right now in society. And we are not doing anything about it. It's very similar to uh, how we treat incarceration. It's like, you know, there's, in terms of public funding going towards um, rehabilitation, it, it barely exists. Like, if I wanted to get into a detox right now in Seattle, um, they'd tell me to call back Monday at 8 o'clock. And then when I call back Monday, 8 o'clock, they might say, sorry, we're full. Call, you know, we only had 10 beds. The amount of help and resources that we have right now um, in our city is, is just completely disproportionate to the help that we really need. Um, so I don't even really remember the question. I just remember it was about, <laughs> it was about drugs. But um, we are... We, we have a lot of work to do, and I think that um, for me, that work starts with me being uh, clean and sober myself. That I, and that comes before my family, that comes before anything else. If I'm not clean and if I'm not sober, then um, I can't step up, and I can't help other people. And helping other people, that service work, is the very foundation of what keeps me clean, keeps me grounded keeps me motivated to get another day under my belt. Um, and that's the most genius part about the 12-step the program is that it's designed to help, is that you help other people, and in that, 
you learn service work and you learn that that is the greatest gift that you could possibly give and receive is being of service to other people. Got it, man. Doug, I, I know that one of the things that you have worked on is uh, bail reform and that issue. What is something that you've learned in that process of meeting with people about bail reform, visiting courtrooms and, and courthouses, uh, because that is not naturally like the work that you have been doing, uh, but work that you care about now? Yeah, I'm, I'm all over the board with that. Um, you know, in some instances, bail reform, it makes sense. In some other instances, it doesn't make sense. And I think, again, I'm, I'm trying to look at it from an, emp an empathic lens to really figure out, you know, what direction I want to go in. You know, I think there's so many conversations that's being had about bail reform right now. Um, there's a, a district attorney in Philadelphia, uh, Krasnix, I think his name is. And he's, Krasner, yep. Yeah, Krasner. He's doing a phenomenal job, right? I th he eliminated the cash bail system. Um, he, he stopped um, persecuting or prosecuting minor offenses, um, nonviolent minor offenses. And, you know, the, the, the recidivi recidivism rates have gone down and the quality of the, of the community and, and the health and wellness of the society in that area has all increased. But, you know, he has his hands deep into it, right? And I'm not, I'm on the surface, I'm trying to just figure out the different layers. And so there's a process that I have to get to in order to get to where he's at. Um, and so with, specifically with the cash bail system, um, I'm, still, I'm still working. I, I still got a lot of work to do. Okay, uh, let's go to 2020. Is there anybody right now that you are supporting for president, or like, how are you thinking about? Uh, how are you thinking about 2020? Uh, is it is it Howard Schultz? He's a hometown. He's a hometown guy. Deray. And <laughs> nothing. What are your thoughts around 2020? The young gentleman in the middle, please. Uh. How are you thinking so far about 2020? Um, how am I thinking? I think there's a lot of people saying the right things. Um, you know, I, when I saw Kamala Harris on CNN, her town hall, and I thought, I was like, she, she seems just like a good mother, right? That was when I first heard her speak. Um, there's some other things that have come out recently where I'm like, ah, I got to talk to my wife about this one. Um, <laughs> There's just a lot of things being said, and I think that it's still going to take us time to, to decipher, you know, to filter out the bullshit and really get to who's, you know, genuine about, um, you know, what they want to do and, and, and their vision for our society for the next four to eight years. Um, I'm praying every day, as I think we all are, that Trump is not in office. Um, But let, but let me qualify that, though, right? Because if I'm going to speak from an, if, an empathic standpoint, I also have to acknowledge that he is also a human being. Um, and I know that somewhere in his mind, he believes that he's doing the right thing for you know, society, for the country, for his family. Somewhere in his brain. Deep. Um, deep. It's deep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where it is. It's deep. So I don't want to speak ill of the man, of, of the human being. Right? I just don't agree with his policies and the way that he goes about living his life. Granted, I don't know how he lives his life. Just, you know, I just base it on all the, the millions of tweets he gives us every day. Um, but I will say that I, you know, I, I pray that there's somebody who stands up and says, hey, I'm not with this. You know, I, don't, I don't view this from just an economic standpoint. And yeah, the economy's doing great for some people. Right? But that, like, what are we really trying to accomplish in the long run Right, is the health of our society. And if you look at the health of our society, we keep falling. Right? We're the only Western civilization that doesn't have um, you know, social health care. Right? We're the only advanced society in the world that doesn't have social health care. Right? There's a whole bunch of countries that have it and they're doing extremely well with it. <laughs> and we're supposedly the greatest country in the world. So why can't we do it? Why can't we figure it out with all the greatest minds? That we have. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Everybody's punting on 2020. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not going to let him sleep on this. You're going to have to answer this question. I want to hear your answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Something. Give us something. And what's in, what issues are important to you as you are thinking about the candidates for 2020? 
We got all day. All right. <laughs> thank, thank you, Doug. Uh, <laughs> I think we need to... What's, what's near and dear to my heart, uh, I think immigration. I think that we need to focus on health care. I think that we need to focus on police brutality. I think that we need to focus on the epidemic of addiction um, and how to treat people. I think we need to focus on homelessness. I'm out. There we go. Mic drop. Okay. I like those. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is about what advice do you have for people who are nervous about taking a first step but, but believe in a better world, but they just don't know where to get started? What's your advice for those people? They, they want to get, they, they care about the world. Heart's in the right place. Heart's in the right place. Don't know what to do. Don't know what to do. I mean, I, I think you're here. You know, you, you care about the world and you came out today. I, I do think that that matters. I think taking whatever today looks like for you and having conversations with other people. Um, I think that that's super important. I think it's particularly important for, for white people to, particularly around issues of, of race and injustice and inequality, to be able to talk to other white folks about those issues and to have those uncomfortable, difficult conversations. I think that that's super important um, so we don't fall complacent, so we don't just um, you know, think that we're fine and that you know, when we're talking about human beings and, um, and, and being empathetic, I think we do, we think of you know, ourselves first, right? We're just selfish creatures. And then we think about our immediate family and then we think about our community and then we think about America, but we're not thinking about just the connection from human to human that has no boundaries, that has no lines, that, that has no, you know, that has no color of skin. It's just literally connection of human to human. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know where your fight is in that. I don't know, I don't know what angle it is, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's whatever it is, um, but to me, it's having those conversations, doing the due diligence to, to research, to, to push yourself, to step into spaces where you might not feel comfortable, and to learn, to listen to others, and then to continue that message and continue to delve in and do the work. Um, that, to me, is where it starts. And that's when passion starts. And that's when all of a sudden passion turns into, um, okay, now I have a purpose. Now I know that this is fulfilling my spirit in a way that my spirit wasn't fulfilled before. And, um, and I'm able to carry a message, whatever that message is. That, to me, is where, is where the seed starts and has the potential to grow. Got it. Boom. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that, you know, just somebody who's vulnerable enough to ask that question, that's a beautiful start, right? Just, just putting yourself out there saying, hey, I don't know. I think that's where all humans should start. We shouldn't be so confident in our, in our own you know, psyche and our abilities. We, we should realize that there's things that we don't know and be vulnerable enough to ask for help. Um, so I would just say just, you know, be, again, being vulnerable to ask those questions, but then also, uh, like Ben said, just having those conversations, being in the conversation and being around people who want to have those conversations. You know, and, and actually putting yourself out there, even if you don't know how to start the conversation, just to throw it out there, right? You know, don't have the conversations about the box score for the game on Sunday or when Macklemore's new CD's coming out, you know? Like, talk about what the individuals on that team are doing for society. How are they using their platform? What are the words that Macklemore is saying in his songs, right? Actually listen to the lyrics. And I think, again, it's just, it goes back to the human standpoint. If you can get closer to what the human is, um, which is being vulnerable, realizing that we don't, we don't all have the answers, but collectively we can come up with solutions, uh, then you start to have these broader conversations, broader ideas, um, broader solutions brought to the table. Boom. If you had a magic wand that could change something about the system, so at the system level, at the city, state, or federal government level, uh, what would you do with your magic wand? <laughs> You're so funny. 
I'll give you a chance to think about it. So I'll ask you a question out here is if you can tell the person next to you something you can buy for $300. Turn to the person next to you right now. This is real. You two do each other. Uh, something you can buy for $300 right now. 300 bucks? Like, do, yeah. tell. Uh, just something. Yeah. Uh, the Jordans that came out today. <laughs> The what? The Jordans that came out today. You could buy that for $300. It's a bad answer, but it's What's your first thought, best thought. Um, first thought, Doug. Okay, bring it back in five. Access to get those Jordans. Four. Whenever they drop. Three. Bring it back in two. Bring it back in one. And we can just get somebody out here to yell out something you could buy for $300. So, okay, homeless shelter. Stuff for homeless shelter, stocks. Uh, something over here? See, uh, okay, 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 in the middle? Plane ticket over here? Okay, uh, what was yours, McLemore? Uh, I forgot. Right? <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't forget. Uh, it was Jordans that came out today. The reason that I ask that is that in Florida, to this day, theft over $300 is a felony. In Virginia, it was theft over $200 until a couple years ago. In Oklahoma, it was theft over $50. It was a felony until 2001. But if I had asked you to name what a felony is, you would have probably said something like murder, rape, like blowing up a building. You wouldn't have said theft over $300. In Seattle, it's theft over $750 is a felony. Again, like pretty low amounts with what we think about it. So when I think about my magic wand, I would try and do something around changing the felony theft amounts. Mm. That was buying Made us time. all feel stupid, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was buying time. Next question. That was, let's leave it at that. Next question. Oh, oh. Um, there are a lot of questions about uh, football and specifically around Kaepernick and, and the idea of whether protesting in that way was actually a positive mm -hmm. for moving the conversation forward or if that actually had people just entrench themselves a little deeper. I love this question. I love this question. Was Kaepernick's way of protesting, was it the right way? Shut up. We're having this conversation right now. Right? Like, we're having this conversation because Kaepernick did something. Whether you agree with it or not, right? Whether you agree with it or not, whether you're mad at him for wearing the socks, I really don't care. We're having the conversation. And that's really all it is. It's like he said, be willing to say something and, and realize you f***ed up and learn from it. Right? Like, we're having the conversation. So uh, you scared me because you said a football question. I know. They but do have other football okay. questions. All right. That's, that's a real I'm question. I'm not trying to put you on the spot there. All right. No. No. I'm, I, am, I think that if you, if you believe in something and you believe in it to your core and you've developed the process and you've thought about it and you've put your emotions into it and you're saying, all right, fuck it, I'm going to do this. Do it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. And we'll figure out the rest afterwards. Yeah. Uh, McLemore, what advice would you give to other white rappers coming into the game about race and equity in a predominantly black industry? There's other ra white rappers in the game? That's what the, <laughs> <laughs> It's literally what the question. Oh, wait, what? They all I know, all I know is McLemore. That's okay, what the, right, see, right. it, I literally read that one. This is. That's a, that's a real question. That's what they wrote. That's a real question. <laughs> I, I think that it is important, and this ties back to an answer a while ago, but I think that it's important. Um, to understand that hip-hop came from a place of struggle. That hip-hop came from a place, and that struggle was um, a byproduct or just a direct product of uh, racism and of white supremacy. So the very origin of the music that you're now taking part of came from something that you also inherently benefit from. Mm -hmm. And to understand that on a, on a level. Um, to know it's important if you're going to engage in the culture to, um, regardless, to be doing it for the right reasons, but to have that understanding and that analysis um, kind of as a jumping off point is, is super, it's just where we need to start. And it's not that you need to, that you need to go and speak on it in every song, or it's not that, um, 
you know, this needs to be like, you know, your concepts need to be tied into this, but it is important that we as white people are, that are very much guests in this culture called hip hop, um, that we understand that we benefit from these same systems um, that have oppressed and continue to oppress people of color historically throughout, the, throughout America. Um, and that at a certain point, it's easy to forget that Because I don't want it to be that way. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't want um, to have an upper hand. I don't want my success to be a direct result of, of because I'm accessible, because I'm safe, because the moms think that I look like their kids and that, you know, even though I'm cussing the same in, in my songs as, as, as this artist does, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm safe for the masses. I don't want it to be those reasons why now I'm famous and I'm successful and I have money and I have a platform. But the, but the truth is, like, it all ties in. Absolutely, I benefited. Um, but what am I doing now for myself to understand that system more, to put it on blast, to, to fight for a more equitable society for all, and, um, and carry that message not only to, not only to other white rappers that, that might be coming up, but to all people, particularly white people, that we need to have this conversation. Um, that's my vantage point. There we go. Okay. Um, a couple more questions. Doug, there's this question about voting. So there are a lot of people in 2016 who sort of said like voting wasn't, there are a lot of people who were like voting isn't going to be the thing or I don't think the president matters or like this isn't the way to sort of make a difference. You should do other things in communities. What would you say to people about the importance of voting or like how do you talk about voting in this moment? I mean, do you have to talk about it? Do you, is there, I mean, is there any, is, okay, but hear, hear me out. <laughs> is there any more, is there, is there any better example than the person who's in the office right now, like that voting matters? I don't think there's any better example, right? Um, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I mean, voting, that's how, we, that's how we handle our democracy, right? That's what our democracy is, is us participating in our democracy by voting. Um, I do think that, and don't take this the wrong way, but I think Trump was good for our society. Yeah. But before you laugh, let me explain. We got complacent as a country. We didn't treat people like we needed to be treated, right? We thought of people as just assets, as just cogs in the wheel. And Trump, he pitched his whole campaign on that. And the thing that Trump brings to our society right now, to our entire system, is he's stressing our system. He is pushing the boundaries of our system. And just like I said earlier, if you are not progressing, if you are not failing, you're not learning. And if you're not learning, then you're not growing. If you're not growing, then you're staying stagnant. If you stay stagnant, then you die. And so the easiest answer to this question is like, how many of y'all want to continue to go down this path? How many of us continue want to, to, to stay stagnant? How many of us continue to want to die? Our society is dying. And I'm, I'm, I, Doug Baldwin said that. You can, you can quote me on that. Our society is dying. There's a number of KPIs that are showing that our society is not getting better. And so if we want to continue to go down this path, then yeah, don't vote. Don't, don't think voting is important. But, you know, I, I hope that this recent example shows us just how important voting really is. Any message about voting? That. Okay. <laughs> that. Uh, this is a local question. Somebody said, your thoughts on the new youth jail that is being constructed less than a block away from this campus? Well, there is a lot of momentum around no new youth jail. Um, 
And it's disheartening. It's disheartening. I, I think that where we're putting our money is not in rehabilitation. I think that where we're putting our money is not with the youth in mind. I think that we as a city have numerous epidemics that we're facing right now. Um, I don't think that a new jail for young people is going to solve any of those epidemics. Um, our kids need help, man. Our kids need help. There is, um, I, I, I know a lot of them. There's a lot of young people out there that are really struggling right now. Uh, the prescription drug epidemic has really hit our young people very hard. I can't even imagine, you know, when I was going to school down the street at Garfield, like if there was the amount of drugs that kids have access to, you know, when I was in high school. Um, it is a very real problem. And, um, you know, it's, we're disproportionately, of course, locking up youth of color. Um, they are targeted. And uh, we think that, you know, putting them in, in, a, in a nice upgraded facility is going to do any good. Like, how much money that ends up costing um, versus programs that could actually help kids figure out who they are, the trauma that they've gone through, the addiction that they're suffering um, from, like, that to me is where we should be putting our money and our resources, not in, a, not in a building. It doesn't matter. Not in a building. I like that. Um, last two questions is, there's a question here that a lot of people voted for, is how do you feel about your celebrity friends and peers staying out of politics and not using their platforms for social change as you do? It's a question. I mean, the whole panel is about like, using your first? platform for good. So what about the people that don't? I want Doug to tell the truth. You want Doug to tell the truth? Because you seem like... They can't handle the truth. I... <laughs> um, let me start off by saying this. Like, I know that I come across abrasive. Okay, I know that. My wife lets me know that every day. Uh, I'm not an <laughs> I'm just very passionate about the things I care about, right? Um, I know they can come across abrasive sometimes, but I'll say this about uh, my fellow um, entertainers, athletes, whatever it may be. I just, I think we're caught in this, this world, this society that, you know, we don't, we don't value the right things. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know how that's come about, you know, it's, if it's, um, you know, if it's, the, it's commercialization of everything, if it, you know, it's the Kardashians, whatever it is, like, we just, we crave more, and we crave this protection on the, the path to getting more. And more doesn't look like, you know, a better society, it looks like more money, more things, um, more clout, more status, whatever that, you know, means. And I think a lot of people are afraid to, to, to step out in this kind of way because, they've seen what happens to people who do, right? Colin Kaepernick, you know, lost his job, essentially. Um, and it's better than, you know, a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL right now and still can't get a job. And I think a lot of guys are afraid to step out and, and be vulnerable, be abrasive, and, and speak their mind and be, and be honest, you know, be true about themselves and how they feel because they're afraid of that. And it's disheartening, it's discouraging, but at the same time, I understand it. Right. And so I don't I don't want to be um, I don't want to be so so critical of them, but I am critical of them in my own conversations. Right. I am pressing them and I am I am asking the question why, you know, a lot of times. But at the end of the day, just like these conversations that we're having with our with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, you know, they all have to come to the realization that there's something bigger than just themselves on their own. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I can't force that upon them. I can only just be. Uh, you know, a, a sounding board for their conversations, for their thoughts, and also make sure that I'm coming from a place of love and empathy when they do come to me or when we do have these conversations so that they can see that, you know, there is another way uh, and that there is a benefit greater than just themselves to doing so. Yeah, I'm glad you went first. 
that um, I think that's a very interesting and on point uh, analysis of this because there's this like scarcity thing, right? There's a social capital scarcity thing. There's financial scarcity, then there's a social capital scarcity of feeling like, okay, if I come out and I say this, even though I know it to be the truth, and I know that there's going to be repercussions, um, I might lose this thing that I have now, you know? I might lose that next endorsement check. I might not get that gig from that from that corporation. They might not mess with me anymore. These people might not like me. So there's like, there's this fear that's ingrained in those of us that have a platform or, or just like, yeah, the, the money's just gonna stop. Right. And it's easy, I think, um, from a different perspective to be like, but they have all the money in the world. Like, that, the, the thing of wanting more, just can, the more money you get, it just continues. You're not like, all of a sudden, like I have X amount of millions of dollars and, and I'm fine and I'm set for life. Like, there's a reason why people keep working and they keep going, because there's always someone with a bigger plane or a bigger yacht or more likes or whatever it is. We, we don't stop, we just want more, like Doug said. And, um, and because of that, we're in this place of just fear that we might lose it. And if we lose it, then who are we? Because we are basing our identity and our self-esteem and our self-worth on what other people think of us. And all these material things that I have to show the rest of the world that I've done something with my life. And I look at what Cap did. I look at what, what Nipsey did. And Nipsey wasn't a very, he, he was a, he was a respected rapper, but he wasn't the most popular rapper by any means. But the way that people have rallied around what Nipsey was doing in his community after he died, he's like, he's, he's a God status now. Um, because he was about the people. And he wasn't in like the newest car. He didn't have, you know, he had nice things, but that wasn't what made Nipsey dope. We messed with Nipsey because he was about the people. That was not record sales. That was not money. That was not commerce. That was because he gave back. But we don't, but giving back is not this instant gratification reward system. Nipsey didn't have the followers or the likes or whatever, but he gave back to the people. And that over time, I think, is rewarded. And if you look at history, um, those are the people that go down. Those are the people who I'm reading to my daughter books about people that fought for other human beings. Like we were reading Muhammad Ali last night in bed like, and about what he did and about how he fought for others. Those are the people that go down in history. It's, it, but we live in this society now where instant gratification is God. Mm -hmm. And it's what's making, it's, it's part of the sickness in which we all live in. Um, and, and, and it's, it's killing us, to be honest. There we go. As our last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I have a horrible memory. <laughs> I, I really do. I don't, really? I, I'm not going to be able to come up with this. No. <laughs> no piece of advice that you got? Or what's a piece of advice that you'd give to, to people that you want to stick with them as we close? Doug. <laughs> For real, you gonna put this on me? I <sighs> I don't know. He, I love it. He's like whispering to me. I don't. It's like we're on stage. <laughs> can you? Can you? Like ask I'm trying to remember what like Doug's dropped gems today. Like I'm trying to think of like some advice I just heard from Doug. Ask ask, ask the question again. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. Okay, well, a different last question is, uh, how do people stay abreast of the issues that you guys are working on? Like, how do people, how can people stay informed? I know you have an organization. Uh, how can people stay informed with your work going forward, both of you? That's a terrible question. It's easier than the other one that- Look, no, don't, don't, don't stay up to breast about what we're doing, right? Do your own thing, right? Please, can you do that? Can just, whatever it is, you know, whether it's, it's volunteering at a school or, Whatever it is, just go do your own. We need more more human beings doing for other human beings. So yeah, register to vote. <laughs> okay. Yeah, vote. Yeah, register to vote. 
Education. Yeah, yeah, we think about this as like a both and, right? That this is not an either or, that it is about making sure systems and structures change and people are informed about them. Exactly. Totally agree. Um, so last question. So we'll follow, we'll follow up with you afterwards. Is uh, what is your, I know you have the organization, like how can people stay informed uh, with the work you care about or the work you're doing? Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> like, comment, subscribe. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Doug's answer. I think, um, yeah, if you want to tap in, you know, I, I post what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm passionate about. And, um, you know, we have an organization called the Residency here in Seattle um, that we are going to be, this is our fifth year. We're going to be celebrating that fifth year with a, with a big show that hasn't been announced yet, but keep your eyes open for that. But I'm about empowering youth in the city to make art and to make sure that they have a safe space to do so, that they have mentors that can guide them, that they can develop their passion and do what they feel like is their calling that gives them a purpose in life, just like my elders helped me out when I was coming up in this city and they helped me fulfill my purpose and guide me on my journey that led me to this stage today. I want to do that for other people, young people in the city. I want to answer your last question. Huh? I want to answer your last question. The advice question? Yeah. Okay. Doug wants to answer the advice question. So what's a piece of advice that stuck with you uh, that you won't forget? She, she made me think about something. Um, yeah. You're in trouble. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a young male, it's very hard for me to hear you. Right? Even as a black male coming from a black woman, it's very hard for me to hear you. And the reason why it's hard for me to hear you is because I feel like you don't see me, right? I need to be seen in order for you to reach me. And I think that's what we all can do is take, take more time. I think we're all busy in our schedules and every, we got all these things that we're trying to do and we're rushing from here to there, but we don't actually take the time to see the people that we engage with. You know, I'm... I'm going to be transparent with you. I'm about to start a family, okay? And so I had, what I had to do, I, I didn't say that for you to clap. <laughs> but what I had to do is I had to start reevaluating the people that are around me, right? Like, who are these people that are going to be in my children's lives? I got to make sure that they're, they're good enough to be in my, in my children's lives. And sometimes we don't do that. We don't take the time to really think about who are these people that we interact with, right? And not to say that I push them out, but then I got to come to them and say, hey, I don't, you know, you got to tell me more about this part of your life because I need, I need to see you. I need to know who you are. And maybe I'm wrong, right? And so I think that my, the, the best advice that I've, I've heard was slow down. Slow down. Take your time when you get to know people. Take your time when you engage with people. You know, don't just judge people just off the way that they look or what the first thing that they say, right? Judge them off of the time that you spend with them. How consistent are they? How consistent are they? How, how, how many times do they come back when you piss them off? When you, when you say something that they disagree with? How many times do they come back? Right? Because I think that's what our, our biggest problem is in our society right now is that we're so segregated. We're, so, we're, we're in silos. We only, we only work with people who think like us. And the only way we're going to bridge those gaps is if we actually bridge those gaps and we start having the conversation to somebody who doesn't look like us, who doesn't think like us. Um, you know, I, again, we have to slow down, talk to each other, really come to see each other and understand each other because no matter how much you try to force some education down my throat, I'm not going to hear you unless you really know who I am, unless you really see me. Um, that's my personal opinion. Don't get mad at me for that. Cool. Let's give it up for Doug Bowen and Macklemore. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Talks. This week's episode was recorded by Rusty Bacall and produced by Sarah Bernard. Audio from the Crosscut Festival was recorded by Seattle Theatre Group. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And for the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. 
Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.